Hi, I'm Bruce Tolgan, author of The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, published by Harvard Business Review Press. And this is The Indispensables, a podcast featuring conversations with real go-to people who stand the test of time in the real world of work. Each week, I ask my guests what they do differently that sets them apart in the workplace, what makes them tick, and what makes them so successful. This week on The Indispensables, Bruce is joined by Ken Leinberger, president of Water's Edge Winery. They discuss how Leinberger transitioned from a job in sales and marketing with a large software company to growing his own company and selling winery franchises nationwide. Welcome to The Indispensables. Today, I have as my guest, Ken Leinberger. He's the founder and president of Water's Edge Wineries, um, and, and I'm dying for you to meet him because... Uh, I will tell you, uh, I've had the privilege of doing some work uh, for for Water's Edge wineries, and this is the only example I can think of of where everyone on my staff uh, said, you know, we might go work for Kent. So, uh, so I, I guess Water's Edge wineries is pretty compelling. Uh, so, so maybe you can explain uh, exactly what the nature of the business, you know, why you founded it. Let's talk about it. Sure. Thanks, Bruce. Hey, thanks for having me on your show. It was really pl- a pleasure getting to know you recently when you did uh, did some work for Water's Edge Wineries, and it was fantastic. I still get uh, people raving about uh, your presentation there, so I- I'm super excited to be on your show and talking to your your listeners in this. Uh, well, so, it, it, yeah, it, it really is great to be here. Yeah, well, it's great to have you. So, quick overview of, of what we are. Uh, we're a unique operation. We are the only... Uh, winery franchise system in the United States. And what does that mean? It means that we are out to put uh, urban and suburban wineries in locations all across the United States. Our advantage is we don't grow grapes ourselves. We outsource all of that. So we can put a winery, uh, say, in in downtown Houston or in uh, uh, Cincinnati, Ohio or Norfolk, Virginia. It, It doesn't matter whether we have any regional grapes or vineyards. We can put a winery there and actually have the production winery in close to the people there in the suburban and urban markets. Uh, and and you were, so for a long time, you were in sales and marketing uh, with, with a big software company, right? And and if I'm, if I'm correct, uh, it was 2004, you and your wife, Angela, uh, started a winery, but, 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 but it was not, but you had a winery for quite a while before you decided to start uh, the franchise outfit. We did. So we founded it in 2004 and I came from corporate America. Prior to that, I, I worked for a large public software company as the sales manager for the Western half of the United States. So I knew business, I knew infrastructure, I understood how to scale something large as, as that company had successfully done. And I'd been on that ride for a long time. Uh, but when we started this, I really had two goals in mind, Bruce. The first goal was, uh, could I create a system here that I could teach others how to do, even somebody that didn't know very much about how to make wine or even that much about wine, but they had a passion for it. That was one of my requirements. And then my second question is, could I scale this? Could I create something that would create an enterprise that I could replicate again and again and again across the country? And it took us about eight years to answer both of those questions. But by 2012, we had answered both of them. And of course, the answer was yes. And here we are. It's uh, it, it's it, so what's the difference between selling software and selling wine? I mean, other than the obvious. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, both of them, both of them require, you know, a, a lot of, a lot of additional features of why you'd want to get it. So uh, that's, that's the key. But the, the simple matter is uh, software is all about tomorrow's technology, right? The, the software companies are out there promising either the consumers or the businesses are going to buy them. What's in the next release? What is it going to be? And that's what the, the consumers want. With wine, it's what was it? What was the vintage? Uh, tell me about the region. Tell me about the history. It's all about looking backwards on wine. And I love that. I wasn't selling something that might become. I was selling something that, that what was and now is in the bottle is poetry. And we can uh, have our consumers enjoy it at the winery. So to me, it was a complete reversal from being in the software industry to really something that was a lot more fun to sell than, than software. Yeah, fun to sell and fun to consume. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> and and um and so, but but it seems to me that you uh, you're still selling wine, but now you're also selling a business opportunity, and and maybe even a lifestyle and a, 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 like a career opportunity, a chance to. I mean, this really, like I said at the beginning, was brought home to me when everyone in my office was like, "Hey, we might open a winery and work for Kent." <laughs> Yeah, it, it's uh, it's really crazy what we we do. So it, you know, we all know about the, uh, the 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 amount of workforce since the pandemic who has left the workforce, and uh, they really don't want to go back into corporate life. So we find there's a lot of what I call the corporate refugees out there looking for the next big thing that they want to do and really want to pour their life into. And if they have a passion for wine, this is a great opportunity for them. So what we're essentially providing them is a, a, a way, a, a model, if you will, that will allow them to be successful in the wine business where they actually are going to not just sell other people's wines, but be able to sell wine that they created themselves. And that's what we teach them how to do. We provide them with the supply chains, all of the information they need to be successful. So for example, one of my newest owners is in Norfolk, Virginia, and he's about to retire from the US Navy in August. Uh, and he's actually a helicopter pilot. Uh, and has been in the Navy for almost 20 years. And uh, he's just so, he and his wife are so excited to do this. Imagine going from having a career where you're landing on a, a ship going up and down and sideways every which way in the middle of the night and having that kind of danger around you to doing nothing but providing fun and activities and events for people within your community. And they're just so looking forward to that change. So that's what a, a lot of people are at. While he's a Navy pilot, I have plenty of corporate uh, refugees, as I called them before, that want to do the same thing. They're in corporate life, they're tired of it, or they were in corporate life. And this is a lot of fun as a career change. Yeah. And and, and so uh, what, what's intriguing to me is they actually are not just selling wine and running events, but they make wine, right? Is part of the setup is they can make wine. Absolutely. So we've uh, developed supply chains that allow us to bring in the crushed grapes. We call it the grape must is, is the technical industry term. Uh, and, and that's brought in from all around the planet. So we bring in the grape must from as far away as Italy, France, New Zealand, Australia, of course, California, uh, Washington, uh, just a ton of different regions around the globe. And then here's the magic, Bruce, is we actually make the wine on site. So that, that uh, Norfolk, Virginia operation, which should open uh, towards the early fall of this year, uh, they will actually have the tanks there. Our guests will be able to walk in, see the tanks, and they're going to smell the fermentation that's going on. They're going to know that it's going on right there. And so it's just really neat to see all that happening. And then, of course, to be able to consume it uh, there on premise, uh, the, the, that's just magical where you just don't see that very often. We see these 
microbreweries popping up all over the place. They're, they're pretty common now, but you don't see microwineries popping up. And so that's what, what the market is that we're trying to capture is that opportunity. So is it like, would one way to understand this uh, would be to say, you see what's going on with microbreweries. This is the analog when it comes to wine. That's exactly right. Yes, that's correct. And and it's not, you know, I'm just old enough that I'm still picturing Lucy and Ethel uh, walking around in their bare feet in, in the grapes from the uh, I Love Lucy show. Uh, but that's that's not how you make wine, right? Oh God, no. <laughs> so no, that's that's about as as uh, archaic as as you know the Flintstones, the, the way they made their cars go back in uh, cartoon days. No, the the way that we do it is extremely. It's it's food facility type uh, environments, um, cleanliness. We have a lot of um, uh, procedures and things around making sure that our operations are done professionally, uh, and and the must that we get is coming in from one of the largest winemaking companies uh, in the world. Uh, they actually are the, the procurers of that for us. They have a whole division that does that. And they bring it in uh, and ship it out to each of our locations on an on-demand basis. So for example, uh, we'll bring in a, a Cabernet Sauvignon from Lodi, California, and it's already packaged. It's ready to go when it comes to one of our wineries. Uh, and all our owners need to do is a four-stage process to turn it into finished wine. Now, of course, that takes a little bit of time. So from the start to finish where it's ready for bottling, it's usually about two to two and a half months. And then if it's a red wine, we do need to age it up for anywhere from another six to 12 months. But our other two categories of wines are whites and our sangrias. After they're bottled, they're pretty much ready to sell. There's no benefit to aging uh, those categories. So our owners can enjoy that uh, right away and start putting it on their shelf and selling it. The red wines do take some more time, which is why we have a big facility here in California that makes all of the starting inventory for our, our new locations. And they're dependent upon that for about the first year of their production. So it's, it's quite a unique operation. Yeah. And uh, so what are the variables in uh, because I, in, in making wine? Because I take it that uh, the wine that gets made in Norfolk, Virginia, and that particular winery uh, might be a little different, or is it not? Is it pretty consistent? So the, it all starts with the raw product, right? If the raw product is consistent, then uh, as long as you follow the same recipe, the end product is going to be consistently the same. And so we have certain names that we use with our products in, in the wineries. And so our owners follow the recipes so that whether you went, enjoyed it in Long Beach, California, or Midland, Texas, or uh, Miami, Ohio, it, it should taste the same uh, in, in, because they follow those recipes for that exact same reason. However, there is a certain creative license within winemaking. So if someone wanted, one of our owners wanted to take one of the base recipes and change it, we allow that, of course, under our direction and our uh, controls of what it is they're going to be doing to it. Um, but just call it a different name. So our consumers always know that, oh, okay, this is a different wine than the other one that I, I tend to like. So we always want to be able to fulfill what I call the consumer promise. And what does that mean? It means that uh, take Coca-Cola. If you bought a Coca-Cola today and then you bought another one next week and they tasted differently, you quickly may be turned off by that product because you, you there's sort of a, in, in, uh, a promise, unsaid promise by a company that when you buy a certain kind of product, it's going to taste the same if it's named the same. And we follow that same kind of idea here that if we're going to change the recipe on it, then we call it a different name at the locations. But otherwise, yes, it's, it's identical between the different locations and the way that they process it, the way they're taught, the way they make it, and it should taste the same to the consumer. I mean, what if somebody in particular wants to 
you know, branch out or wants to kind of do their own thing. I mean, how do they decide like, but we want to make some slightly different wine. You said there's creative license, uh, but is there a program for that? Like, um, you know, I want to get more creative. Well, yes, within the confines of our training. So I'll give you a good example of that. Um, we have uh, a Pinot Noir that's very popular, and we typically are using American oak with that Pinot Noir to create a really rich flavor. American oak tends to have larger pores on it, and it imparts more of a stronger oak flavor on it than, uh, say, French oak. French oak has a, a finer pore makeup in its uh, in its uh, molecular makeup, and so that, that'll create a different taste profile in that Pinot Noir. So we would, if somebody wanted to have a different profile of that same Pinot Noir, we would direct them to instead let's use some let's use some French oak with it, and we do the same thing. But again, we would call it a different name at the location so that the consumer doesn't try and say, "Hey, why does this Pinot Noir that I tasted before why does it taste different now?" Oh, we used French oak on it. That's not okay. We want to be able to have the consumer right up front know that this is a different wine, and so that's why we use a lot of fanciful names. So, for example, that that Pinot Noir I just mentioned, where we use the American oak, our common name in the system is called Romeo. Um, for our wine enthusiasts out there, you, you know that uh, Pinot Noir is the red varietal of the Burgund uh, Burgundy region in France, and uh, Chardonnay is the white varietal for uh, France in, in the Burgundy region of France. So we call our, our Pinot Noir Romeo and our Chardonnay Juliet. So we make those the same way to, to impart that promise. But to your point, Bruce, if somebody wanted to you know try something a little different with that Pinot Noir, okay, great. Let's use French oak, for example. But we're not going to call it Romeo. We're going to come up with a different name so that, the, that our guests know that it's a different wine. Well, and that makes sense. That's sort of taking care of the end user, taking care of the customer, but also allowing the franchisees to have some creativity. Yeah, we, we get the most, best of both worlds with the way we do it. And uh, so, so how many uh, how many franchisees are, are, are you up to now? I think we've got about uh, 20 locations. We should have about 25 uh, by mid-year. We've got a number that are in the works. Uh, a lot of people are very anxious to, to join. Um, so it's, uh, it's growing quickly. Um, I think we will pass uh, 35 within the next year. So we're, we're adding about 10 to 12 a year is the current clip. Yeah, but also that's like a 50% growth rate at the moment. Right. We, we actually have been named to Inc. 5000 last year. Uh, I think we were number, um, it, we're right mid-range in like the 2600 number out of 5,000 fastest growing private companies in the United States. And this year, I anticipate we'll move up even even further. We just completed our application for that, in fact. Yeah, that's super cool. And so, so how does it work? Uh, uh, I, I don't know if it's a business secret how much it costs or if it's a business secret uh, what kind of ownership uh, the franchisee gets their different franchise models, right? Um, so, 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 what can you say about how it works? Yeah, and and franchises are a very regulated industry, so there's nothing secret about them. In fact, everything is is out in the public and open, which is a good thing because it protects the consumer, meaning the potential franchisee, from buying a system that's really not all that it's supposed to be. So all the documentation, everything is out there in ultimately available for somebody to review that's seriously considering our model. So that being said, Bruce, the overall investment that somebody should expect to be prepared to come in to open up one of our wineries, and most of our wineries are around 3,500 square feet uh, of retail type space. So they have to be built out. Uh, they have to be equipped. They have to have all the furniture furnishings put in them. Uh, we do have a small bistro kitchen that we also add to it so that we can serve food at each location and create a com more complete experience with the wine. 
all of that uh, rolled up is going to cost somewhere in the eight hundred thousand to million dollar range uh, to to create that. And and we can go larger. Um, a lot of our places now are pushing up forty five hundred or five thousand square feet. And of course, that that's all in the the eight hundred thousand to million dollar price tag is for everything I've I've mentioned, including your working capital that you're going to need in your bank account. So it's not an inexpensive uh, enterprise. It's um, it's a brick and mortar. But these things are, are super popular. They people love them. Uh, and, and really, it's a big hit in the communities that, that we uh, that we go into very quickly. And so are you guys in the financing business also? Or do you uh, help folks make the case and get outside financing? Yes. Uh, your, your, your second answer is absolutely how we do it. So we have a number of financing partners. Uh, we are an SBA registered franchise. So what that means is if uh, someone is SBA qualified or they're qualified by a bank, the SBA will guarantee their loan because we're a registered franchise with the SBA. And so that helps them get financing as long as they're credit qualified to be able to fund one of these uh, in their community. Uh, and then what is the ownership stake? That uh, if I'm a franchisee, what's the ownership stake I get when I, once I'm all in, I'm set up, uh, how, how does it work? So the business is essentially yours. Um, each operation, each location is independently owned and operated. Uh, Water's Edge uh, has a 5% royalty that we take. And that's, by the way, going up to 6% uh, at the end of anybody that signs from October on of 2022. So it is increasing to kind of encourage people to join sooner than later if it is something that they'd like to do. Um, but yeah, so we, we get uh, what will become a 6% royalty on everything that they sell. But otherwise, they get to keep all the rest and uh, use it to grow their business, uh, pay their employees, pay their rent, all that other good stuff and pay themselves, of course. Uh, got it. So you, so you're just so they they've got ninety four percent of the revenue they, they uh, that they're going to be able to claim themselves. That's exactly right. And and so what one of the points of, that I like to make with people about this business model that's so unique, especially as a uh, a, a, a enterprise that's selling product. Um, what we've created here is what's called a, a direct to consumer model. A lot of people know it as DTC out there that you've heard that term. And what that means is that uh, essentially we've put the manufacturing uh, facility and the retail facility all under one roof. So our tanks are sitting in our wineries and our owners are actually making the wine on premise and then they're aging it if it's necessary to age and then they're selling it. So in other words, there's no middleman that eats up the uh, margins in our system. So if you think about the, the winery owner, uh, she's in Napa and she's got to sell her wine to get it out to, let's go back to Norfolk, Virginia. Uh, and so she's got to sell that wine to a distributor in California. That distributor has to then ship it all the way out to Virginia, who ultimately has to sell it to a retailer, say a restaurant or a, a liquor store or a wine store. And then that uh, wine store has to mark it up to sell it to the consumer. So as you can see, Bruce, all along the way here, people are taking bites out of the margin. And in our model, there are no bites out of the margin. Um, so it, it, the, the, the um, owners of our wineries are selling directly to the consumer as the manufacturer, the creator, the producer, whatever you want to call them, of the product. Got it. That's fantastic. And so it's what's really interesting is, of course, it's a business for you. I hope it, it, it's a lucrative business for you. I hope it keeps growing. Uh, and I guess, uh, you know, when you get up to 30, 40, 50 wineries, uh, these things must have substantial revenue. What, what, what kind of revenue can somebody expect? So we're just uh, now publishing in our 2022 FDD 
all of our uh, what's called item 19 disclosures. So I would refer people to that because that's uh, really the the uh, gold standard for a franchise as to what revenue expectations someone have. Uh, we do publish each of our locations revenues in our franchise disclosure document FDD. So I'd have them refer to that. What's cool about this is there's so many people who you know, they don't know what their passion is and um, and and um, and they know they have to make a living. And if they realize one of their passions is wine, uh, you know, they probably, you know, don't think, oh, yeah, one of my passions is wine. That'll probably be a key to my career. Right. Uh, most people, they, they, they don't realize that. Um, it seems like one of the things you're in the business of doing uh, is is helping people. Uh, do something that could be really interesting, that could be really fun uh, and also lucrative. And uh, I, I, I say all that because I know you cite Zig Ziglar's uh, uh, famous quote, you can have everything in life you want if you'll just help enough other people get what they want. It seems like this is a really good manifestation of that. <laughs> You're spot on. And I, I've always felt that way since we first started this uh, way back in 04. Um, and, you know, what's interesting, Bruce, is when I ask people, when I get them on the phone, one of the early questions I'll ask them is, you know, what do you think about wine? Or how do you, I don't ask them, what do you know about wine? I just, what do you think? How do you feel about wine? And I'm looking for people that come back and say, oh, my gosh, I love wine. My, my husband and I go to, go to Napa every other year. We've got a wine cellar with 200 bottles. In it. What, I don't care how many bottles they have in their cellar. But the point is that they're excited about it. They love it. They like to talk about it. Um, that's my first prerequisite. I really don't care how much they know about wine because I can teach them that. I can't teach them the passion. And so I'm, I, I see that as sort of a foundation because what we're trying to do in this model, Bruce, is really create that excitement in America of people uh, experiencing the winery lifestyle, not only as our owners, but as our guests coming in that they're going to provide that for. Bruce, an amazing statistic is um, three quarters of this uh, uh, country has hardly any wineries within the state, and certainly many are not within driving distance. So uh, only uh, I think the static is status is something like uh, 80 percent of the wineries exist within about 20 to 25 percent of the states in this country. I think it's the numbers like six states in this country. So imagine if I told you that, you know, 44 states in this country had hardly any gas stations, right? Everybody needs gas. What would the, you'd be like, hey, let's build gas stations in those 44 states. Now, obviously wine, I'm not comparing directly to gas, but the point is the demand is there for wine, just like it is for gas. And there, there are 44 states out there across this country that have hardly any wineries located within them. And those are the states that were really uh, focused on getting, getting our model out there. Places like I mentioned Ohio and Texas um, and Illinois and uh, uh, Oklahoma, uh, there's a lot of wineries in Virginia, but there's there's a lot of demand there for it as well. But uh, Arizona is another place, right? So everybody knows that their state has wineries, but they usually are far out of reach. They're out in agriculture areas. They're not easy to get to. Ours are in their neighborhood, so they can stop by there anytime, go out to dinner, really enjoy that whole winery lifestyle as a guest in, in one of our wineries. Yeah, it's 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 uh, it's pretty cool. And uh, and and how many actual employees do you have at say headquarters? So I'm currently up to seven people, uh, and including myself. Uh, so we run a pretty lean ship here. Um, the 
The overall business um, did last year uh, about $8 million in revenue in the, across the entire system. I think this year we could pass uh, easily $10 million in annual revenue. So our eight employees you know, support a pretty good sized business model out there uh, that's currently growing very rapidly within the, the market. And that's not the total revenue of all the uh, wineries. That's that's it is. That, oh, it is. Okay, it, I see. I it see. is. Yeah, yeah, it is. Of the ones that that are currently, that's twenty twenty one. So we're we're growing at a clip of about uh, thirty to forty percent growth on that top line per year. Yeah, that's amazing. And so, what's your approach to uh, leadership? Obviously, you um, spent time leading and managing people uh, in sales and marketing at, when you were in the software business. Uh, what do you have like a, a philosophy or a, a strategy and approach when it comes to leadership? So let me ask you this, Bruce. Do you want that answer before I met you or after I met you? Yes. <laughs> so before I met you, I my whole mindset was that hands-off manager, right? I, I hire smart people, I hire competent people, and I'm going to let them go do their jobs until there's a problem. And then I'm going to go get involved and try and solve the problem. And so consequently, it leads to exactly what you preached that managers fail at is being proactive managers, being hands-on managers. And so since meeting you, since reading your books, uh, it's completely changed my outlook. In fact, in some ways, I even think I, I, I wish I could have redone my career in the corporate world. I think I would have been even more successful had I known your philosophies and known what you're teaching now. Um, but the fact of the matter is my philosophy now is, yes, I still have competent people. I expect competency, but I also am talking to them weekly. And this is so much fun, right? This is something that you really inspired me to do. And I now have weekly meetings with my key reports of what they're doing. And, and we don't do the coffee. Uh, we, we don't do the, the water cooler talk, right? How was your weekend? As, as you, you know, recommend, it's very uh, to the point. It's usually about a 10 or 15 minute meeting um, and, and we get through it. And now they feel supported. Um, they feel like I am aware of what they're working on. And here's the big thing, Bruce. And, and if you said this in your book, I, I probably passed over it. But they feel that I value the work they're doing. And, I, and, and that's the big thing is, is that it's not like, oh, I think Ken cares about this, but I'm not sure because he never tells me. Uh, maybe in an annual review, he tells me, but that's so broad and so high level, there's nothing specific. So I can give them the attaboys or the redirects or things like that uh, during my conversations with them on those weekly meetings. So that to me, Bruce, more than anything is golden. And that is what changed my whole outlook on management. Yeah, it's funny because sometimes people think, oh, well, if I'm going to be talking to them, you know, once a week and and having a one on one where I'm taking notes that that, you know, they're going to think, oh, wow, you know, uh, oh, Mr. Tough Guy manager. But the reality is, if you've ever had a manager who didn't really know what you were doing, how you were doing it uh, or, or didn't seem to know or didn't seem to make much of an effort to know and care uh, it does tell you, gee, is my work, maybe my work's not that important. Maybe I'm not that important to the boss. Whereas when, when you have a manager, a leader uh, who is spending time with you, guiding, directing, supporting, uh, also, you know, uh, letting you know, hey, I know who you are. I know what you're doing. I care about what you're doing. You are important and your work is important. Uh, that's that's so powerful. And of course, every problem you help them avoid, every problem you identify and solve, help them solve quickly, every resource you help them get or, or, or work around you help them with, every time you show them, oh, if you do it this way, it might work better. You know, of course, 
that's all part of the, the value proposition of strong leadership. But to your point, a huge amount of it is when you spend time talking to people about what they're doing, they understand, oh, I'm important and my work is important. There, there's no question. I uh, sit on the board, Bruce, of a, an organization called Big Brothers, Big Sisters. It's a nationwide organization. Uh, and it's really all it's about is mentoring and bringing up kids that are in uh, poor and underserviced neighborhoods and giving them somebody that has gone through school, that does have a professional job. Um, and it's just amazing what these kids get pulled out of them to the point where that organization has a 99% high school graduation rate if somebody has been uh, a little with, with a big uh, for, for that organization. And that tells you everything because it doesn't change just because we're a workplace, right? People need to know in a mentor relationship, which is what a boss should be as a mentor to them, to help them develop, to help pull more capability, more possibility out of them, even though uh, the people that I work with are, are professionals, but it, but it's very parallel to what an organization like Big Brothers Big Sisters does, and it's the same ideas: is be a mentor, be step it up. You know, you've got value add. And I will tell you one other thing, Bruce: is as owner of the company, I want to know where my money is being spent on my human capital, right? Because we have to do payroll. I just did it an hour ago today, and it's it's a substantial cost for our business model, as I'm sure you can imagine. It is for most business models. And so as a boss or as a, even more important as an owner or company, this gives me the assuredness that I'm getting my money's worth out of one of my biggest expenses that I have on my P&L every single month. Yeah, and it's I, I love that you bring up uh, big brothers, big sisters, uh, because I, I, I was going to ask about that. I know one of the things I think is so cool uh, about you is, you know, you have the pattern of like a seasoned salesperson and you have the pattern of a savvy business person. And and um, and but I happen to know because because you've shared it with me that you do a lot of public service, a lot of community service. I mean, what others would say would be charitable works, good works um, in whatever tradition, uh, there might be different words for, for it. But I, but I know, uh, I think you, you uh, uh, are or have been on the board of directors of a family shelter. You, you've been on the board of governors uh, of the university you attended, uh, you 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 uh, work with uh, big brothers and big sisters. Uh, you are on the board of directors of of your church. I mean, uh, so while you're also the two thousand six hundredth fastest growing business, uh, right? So, uh, and and where does that intersect? I mean, is that separate? Like over here, I'm helping people figure out that their passion might be a winery and they can also have lots of fun and make a good living over here. I'm serving, but I get the sense that uh, maybe that's a bigger part of who you are and how you operate than, than could be evident from somebody listening to you uh, explain the virtues of buying a winery. It is. And the intersection is actually to me obvious in the sense that of what, where my life has become, um, and it took a long time to get here. So uh, the, the intersection is essentially servant leadership. Uh, and, and really that's um, my, my Christian faith. That's what I believe in, uh, that essentially we're here to serve others, not, not to have it be the other way around. 
I've always loved it. It almost sounds like a biblical verse, but it actually came from the Hard Rock Cafe. I don't know if you've ever been to a Hard Rock, Bruce, but they have a, they have a great saying painted up on their walls, and it says, love all, serve all. And, and I teach that, that that's really what our philosophy is. If, if, they, if they had gotten that, I, I would steal it, but it's their saying, not mine. Um, but I use it, and it's a great saying. And so really that's the intersection is how can we serve other people on this planet, whether they're, they're people that, that need our help or people that want our help, uh, those are the two groups, right? And so whether it's in your community or whether it's with your business. So my whole business model here is built to help our owners succeed and have my employees and myself serve them to be more successful as owners of their own enterprises. And that's what I love. I love being a mentor. Yeah. And serve. So you can, this is the classic uh, do well by doing good. Uh, but what I love about it is that, you know, you wouldn't really think so. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm in the franchise business. I'm in the winery business. Um, and yet you look just below the surface. And I, I, I'm guessing that, that, that your wife, Angela, is also um, uh, uh, very service minded as well. Yes. Even more so than I am, uh, especially since she's retired now, she does a lot of service work within the community and is always donating her time and energy on a number of projects. Yes. And I know you have a child. Uh, she's 26 now. 26. Golly. And is yeah. she also uh, now is she opening a winery and or does she fly a Navy helicopter and or <laughs> uh, is she also serving the public? No, she lives on her own in, in Florida. She's got her own life that she's pursuing. So uh, she she doesn't have anything to do with the business model uh, today. Uh, and you and I have in common a love of dogs. But uh, but I, I got to ask you about the flying airplanes. Tell us about that. So <laughs> my, my dad was a World War II uh, pilot. He, he flew B-17s. And so I've always had a passion for flying. Um, I'm the only one in our family who actually went and got our pilot's license. I was convinced, Bruce, when I got out of college, I was joining the Navy. I was signed up to go to Pensacola. I was going to be, I mean, I, it, when I graduated, Top Gun was the you know, number one movie out in the theaters. And I was sure I was going to be Tom Cruise and be out there uh, flying these things. But then I realized how much money I could make in the corporate world. And, and I, I said, you know, I think I'd rather pursue the corporate dream than the, the Navy dream. And I changed uh, the, the passion. But that being said, I, I've always had a passion for flying. Uh, I love it. Uh, I got my pilot's license way back in the probably 1989, uh, and, and I've been flying ever since. It's recreational. Uh, I, I don't get too serious about it where I, I'm, you know, investing a ton of money or time into it, uh, but it's just, it's more for fun. But I, th I think you've made clear what, where your uh, faith and your commitment to service uh, meets up with your approach to business and leadership. Um, do you learn anything from flying an airplane that you also bring into your work or, or is it just completely a hobby? Yeah, it's, it's two things. It's the first is uh, it, it really teaches you about faith and it really teaches you about overcoming fear. And the first is about faith, right? I have to have faith that every time I, I throttle that uh, engine up at the beginning of the runway for takeoff, that those wings are going to work, that the physics are going to work, that the air is going to be there as I get it under the wings and start lifting off. Because when you're 5,000 feet above the ground looking down in a very thin window and know that there's nothing but a piece of sheet metal between you and 5,000 feet straight below you, you have a lot of faith that everything's going to continue to work. Your engine's going to continue to work. The air is going to continue. The physics are going to continue to work. So it, it teaches you that faith, right? People a lot of say, I, I don't have faith. 
Yeah, you do. Every time you sit down on a chair and you don't feel your way down to that chair the entire way, you have faith that chair is going to hold you up, right? It's the same thing. So it's it's all about faith and, and really believing in yourself, believing in, in my case, in, in my Christian faith, uh, that knowing where we're going and what we're doing. But the other part of it is overcoming fear. When I was uh, growing up, I had a, a, an intense gripping height, uh, a fear of heights, uh, to the point where it controlled me, and and I got tired of it. And by the time I got to college, I was determined to kick it. Uh, one idea I thought about was maybe hypnosis or something like that. But what I wound up doing is, at the time, our, our local amusement park called Knott's Berry Farm, many people have heard of it. It's a pretty big theme park here, kind of like Disneyland. They had this parachute ride, Bruce. And this thing would pull you up 25 stories tall in a basket that had a mesh floor. You could see straight through the floor down to the ground. And I went there on like a midweek day where this was unlimited ride privileges, right? And nobody else was there. And I was determined to ride that basket and up that parachute ride where they drop you after after 25 stories pulling you up, drop you, and then, of course, slow you down just before you got to the ground. And I was determined to ride that ride until I could do it without holding onto the basket, hands-free. And it took me probably about 15 rides until my, my head finally rewired itself to say, this is, I'm not going to die. I, I can live with this. And I was still scared, but it wasn't paralyzing type fear. And that led me to being able to fly airplanes, because I think if I'd had that fear in airplanes, it'd be tough to fly them. You know, again, going back to that 5,000 square, uh, 5,000 feet above the ground, and you're, you're, you know, there's nothing but, you know, a quarter of an inch of sheet metal beneath you or aluminum beneath you that's holding you up. Um, that, that can be scary. So it's, it's, these kinds of things, Bruce, you have to press on to really overcome your fear, whatever it is and however you need to do it, you've got to overcome your fear. Yeah. And, and that sounds like a great example of be afraid, do it anyway. Yeah, exactly. Cause it's, there's no courage in doing something you're not afraid to do. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Um, so, so what, what is your, uh, when you, um, are looking into the future, um, where, where do you hope to be in five years? Where do you hope to be in 10 years? Well, I, I'm really hoping to take this company to a revenue size um, that really begins to attract outside investment um, because there's a lot of opportunity for this company to grow significantly. Do I think we're going to be a, a Starbucks? No, I, I don't think we'll be that big or, or anything like that. But is there an opportunity to put two, 300 of these uh, coast to coast and be uh, the largest winery chain in the United States? I absolutely do. Um, the opportunities there the model is there. The desire is there. I, wine isn't going away. It's not a trend, right? It's been around since uh, the, the Egyptians. Yeah, um, that's so, for sure. <laughs> yeah, so so I, I see this as a huge opportunity. It's a big country. The desire for wine in this country continues to increase. Um, what what they found in studies over the past uh, few decades is a, as a country's affluence increases, so does its affinity for wine. And we're right in parallel with that, right? We're, we're hitting a little rough patch this year with our economy, but that's a blip on the radar. Essentially, the, the affluence of our country is going to continue to increase over time, and therefore, so will the interest in wine. So where do I see us? I see us as, as being a, a midsize um, franchise company that has you know 150 to 300 different units across the country um, with, uh, with investment um, coming in to help us grow to that level. So that's really where I see us going, and, and I hope to be able to lead it to, down that path to be able to do it. And, and, and is your plan that, okay, then you've got, you have enough corporate experience that you feel like, yeah, I, I can run a company that size. You know, I guess that's to be determined, Bruce. It's, it's, it's a good question. Um, and I don't 
I don't necessarily have to be in that position where I am the one running it. I don't have an ego that is trying to be fulfilled with this thing uh, being big. I want it to be successful. I want our owners to be successful. Uh, and, and really, that's my main focus. And I want our employees to be able to grow and be successful. So those are my focuses. Those are what are right in front of me right now. Um, I don't really worry a whole lot about what's down the three to five year picture, because we, as we all know, that that can change um, you know, very quickly. And it's pretty hard to predict the future. My crystal ball is still broken, and I'm waiting for it to come back online. Yeah, the future's a mirage. Just for the record, I have I have a crystal ball. It's on my mantelpiece, but uh, thus far I haven't been able to uh, make it show me the future. You know, uh, so um, at least that's still uh, my public stance. Um, and uh, <laughs> I think if I start talking about my crystal ball, a lot of people who uh, uh, would worry I was too groovy. <laughs> Um, so, uh, but, but, but the, the, the image you have there, um, it would be like a 50 to a hundred million dollar business, right? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I certainly believe that this is very capable of becoming that, uh, and it still would be a small player in the wine industry overall. Yeah. Right. Right. Interesting. Uh, well, uh, uh, I hope that some of the people who listen to this podcast, uh, we'll come visit one of your wineries. Uh, I have a feeling uh, a lot of people who listen are going to want to buy one. The question will be how many. Uh, but um, but but I, what I really am hoping is that people will take away the your lessons about faith and service and your lessons about um, uh, how to do uh, how to do well by doing good. Yep, that's that's a key message, Bruce. I I know you promote out there, and certainly I do too within our, our organization. In fact, by the way, just to finish up on the the event that you spoke at our, our annual meeting, um, one of the the awards that we give every year is what we call our Noble Cause Award, and uh, it's a prestigious award that's given to our owner that we believe best represents. Uh, giving back to their community and makes a concerted effort, not just at one event, but all year long to be able to do that. So that's a, a pretty coveted award that our owners are, are after to encourage the other owners who see them, the, the winner of that, uh, be able to uh, try and get it uh, the following year. Well, and that also speaks volumes about your commitment to service. Ken Leinberger, Waters Edge Wineries. Thank you for being a guest on The Indispensables. Thank you, Bruce. It's been a pleasure. If you like this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review. You can also follow us on Twitter at goto underscore podcast. That's at goto underscore podcast. Learn more about GoToism in my new book, The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, available now from Harvard Business Review Press, wherever books are sold. And you can learn more about our work at Rainmaker Thinking by visiting us at rainmakerthinking.com. Until next time, stay strong and stay indispensable. Next time on The Indispensables, Bruce is joined by Monica Ho, Chief Marketing Officer at Soci.